This is episode 171 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Heart and Human Development with Dr. Benoit Bruno. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We were surrounded by them. Like many stem cell researchers, Arun and I attended the 2020 ISSCR virtual meeting, not really surrounded by them. We were virtually surrounded by them, which is <laughs> totally meaningless. We were staring at a screen. But uh, we were there virtually this past week, and we have some great interviews in store for you with some of the meeting's top researchers. That's including Drs. Madeline Lancaster, Christy Red Horse, and Martin Para. If you missed out on the meeting, you can also check out our daily ISSCR video roundups where we summarize some of the most interesting research that was presented at the meeting to watch those. Uh, you should visit stemcellpodcast.com slash ISSCR 2020. Check it out. That's us in a video format. Please forgive my hideous visage. Um, but Arun is a, a pleasure to look at. So thank you. Get over there. Uh, today, we have Dr. Benoit Bruno from Gladstone Institutes on the podcast to talk about his research into the mechanisms of heart development. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming up. But first, we have to remind you guys about Muscle Cell News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters, something I actually take a, take a look at every day. Really good heart stuff in there, too. Muscle Cell News summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in muscle cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Monday. So save time and keep current with Muscle Cell News. And you can subscribe for free at www.musclecellnews.com. So we're going to get into the roundup here. And the first paper I'm going to talk about is coming from the lab of Carl Gregory. First author is Ian McNeil. Title of this paper is Characterization of a Pluripotent Stem Cell Derived Matrix with Powerful Osteoregenerative Capabilities. And this is published in Nature Communications. Here we're talking about bone and bone repair. And we know that most broken bones can be fixed with like a cast, for example, right? But more complicated fractures actually require treatments like bone grafting. So this is coming from researchers at Texas A&M who have created superior bone grafts using iPSC-derived cells. And they found that these grafts can create really good scaffolds that are needed for the bone to actually regenerate at the site of repair. So the general premise here is instead of using um, mesenchymal stem cells, which can be somewhat heterogeneous in terms of their uh, their differentiation, in terms of their derivation, uh, they're, they're using iPS-derived human mesenchymal cells. And the thought here is, one, you can scale them up very quickly. And two, they're able to actually create a matrix, an ECM, really harness the extracellular matrix from the iPS-derived mesenchymal uh, stem cells to, you know, to repair bone. And so how, how do they do it? First, they confirm that their iPS-derived human mesenchymal stem cells are sharing the characteristics of their um, uh, primary mesenchymal stem cells. Next, they demonstrated that the iPS-derived mesenchymal stem cells 
the osteogenesis in these cells is regulated by Wnt signaling and also PPAR gamma signaling. And when you actually inhibit PPAR gamma, that's increasing the osteogenesis of these cells. The next thing they did was their kind of the crux of the paper, which was use extracellular matrix derived from purified monolayers of these iPS-derived mesenchymal stem, uh, stem cells and uh, identified that they have really enriched levels of collagen, as you might expect. It's ECM, right? And if you graft this ECM onto a mouse model, you can really substantially improve bone repair uh, if you get rid of the collagen in the ECM, um, you would expect, as you would expect, it results in osteogenic deficiencies. So the the bone isn't able to grow back quite as well. So it's a it's a nice study that's spanning the gamut from you know basic science all the way to an in vivo model um, from you know uh, in vitro all the way to in vivo. Then makes sense, right? Bone is something that you know this is a very widespread phenomenon, bone repair, right? A lot of people have fractures. I've had bro broken bones back in the day. And anytime you can figure out a way to improve bone healing, I think this is this really has a ton of translational potential too. You know, I've never broken a bone. Isn't that amazing? So really, wow. Know, I don't need this stuff. I'm just not interested. But uh, yeah, I'd probably just jinx myself. Um, the, the thing I think is interesting about this is a couple of things. One is that, you know, this idea of using a cell source to generate a kind of acellular substrate. So there's kind of a, I think a broader potential for this, maybe if you don't, if you take the cell component out of it, but you have a material, even an IPS derived material that can then generate unlimited matrix for you, that could be really, um, a robust system. But in terms of like the mesenchymal stem cell differentiation. I feel like, you know, the whole idea of a mesenchymal stem cell, while at first there was a kind of negative stigma, or first everyone was crazy about it, and then the stigma grew. Now I think we're rethinking what even defines a mesenchymal stem cell. It's kind of a catch-all definition. We've talked about that mm -hmm. with some of the guests. So I'd be interested, and I think what's good about this is like, you get primary MSCs from a, from a patient, depending on the tissue. They could be, even you get it from the same tissue in a different day, different prep. Who knows? There could be differences. Whereas a IPS, IPSC starting uh, material, I think the benefit there is maybe you could get a more reliable derivative, but still, and I know they do go some ways, as you said, in characterizing um, how much like the true bona fide MSCs, their IPS derived MSCs are. But I still would ask the question, like, what MSC do they correlate to in the body? What is the degree of difference between some cells within that prep or from passage to passage, because that might affect, of course, you know, the constitution of that ECM. So a few questions I have there. Yeah, yeah, it's a valid questions, all of them. Um, you know, when it comes to the specific subtype of MSC, I don't know if that's actually well characterized here, but you know, it is definitely a valid point. A Really, the differentiation of MSCs from IPSCs is somewhat heterogeneous and you probably have a mixed bag just like you have a mixed bag of cardiomyocytes when you differentiate but one thing actually you referred to here that i thought was really relevant um was the possibility of using these cells as a factory right you're not necessarily using the cell itself as your therapy and your 
uh, regenerative approach here, but you're using the ECM that's derived from the cell. So in essence, what you're trying to do here is use these cells as a factory for producing ECM, not unlike what we talked about previously um, a few weeks ago when it came to using the uh, cerebral spinal fluid from those organoids, mm. uh, potentially if you can scale that up, right? What if you have like an unlimited supply of cerebral spinal fluid if you just pop the little bowls in those organoids, right? Maybe you can use those organoids as a factory for CSF, just like you can use these cells as a factory for ECM. Who knows? Yes, yes. There's a lot of uh, potential. I like this idea of cell cells as factories because it's, I mean, it's much more, I think, low-hanging fruit clinically and also from an investigation standpoint. So I'm with you on that. Um, you talk about, you know, uh, the identity of these MSCs. There's another age-old debate vis-a-vis -vis identity in tumor cells and uh, tumor plasticity. It's been well-documented, and specifically as it relates to this vascular mimicry. Um, it's an idea that was put out years ago. I mean, when I studied endothelial cells from uh, pluripotent stem cells, it was a big factor there is how, how much like actual bona fide endothelial cells they are, whether they can recapitulate this vascular mimicry that we see in tumor cells. Um, because there is clearly plasticity amongst tumor cells because they do whatever they got to do to adapt to the environment. And this has been well described in terms of like epithelial mesenchymal transition or EMT, which is critical in tumor growth and metastasis um, in all epithelial derived car carcinomas. Uh, but there's also this vascular mimicry or tumor endothelial transition that's been reported in glioblastoma and other cancers in vitro and in vivo. Um, and this is interesting because the tumor cells, they shed their, their tumor-related profile or phenotype and they adopt this endothelial phenotype. And the re relevance of this is, is high because, you know, the vascular channel, that's a means by which you get metastasis to distant sites. Um, so it stands to reason that if it's these endothelial cells and vascular mimicry that's mediating it, you could target that process and mitigate the degree of um, uh, metastasis of many cancer types. So uh, Lydia Koss, who's at Florida, Florida International University, no coincidence in Miami, she's studying melanoma, a lot of sun over there, so she's probably getting ahead of it. Um, they use the spontaneous mouse model of melanoma and show that there is indeed this phenotypic plasticity. They do a lot of lineage tracing um, and elegantly and rigorously show that there's this phenotypic plasticity whereby the melanoma cells, they uh, inhabit, colonize this intravascular niche and become indistinguishable from surrounding endothelial cells. And they just hang out there. They you know, are quiescent and chilling out until they can then be mobilized then by an endo-MT or endothelial to mesenchymal transition where they then extravasate into the tissue again um, and cause these metastasis. And then they go on to show that this is not only uh, evident in these uh, mouse, spontaneous mouse models, but also in human melanoma samples and xenografts. So they, they really extend this to uh, the clinical relevance is by showing that this isn't just a phenomenon in an experimental setting, that but that also human tumor cells seem to be doing this very same thing. So a, a real, I, I think, uh, important result that probably going to have some implications, not just for melanoma, but for a lot of cancers, including glio, where you've noted this kind of vascular mimicry uh, phenomenon. Yeah, this is a story about 
trans differentiation, and we've been talking about that quite a bit on the podcast, the possibility of cells transforming from one cell type to another. I don't know about you, but you know, this to me, this is a little scary. This is a little scary because there's the possibility of cells just potentially just hanging around and then ultimately transforming into a, a you know a cancerous cell down the road it's just, and you actually before we were before we actually recorded this you were telling a story about a family member of yours who had recovered from cancer and then unfortunately had a car accident and that cancer returned so perhaps there is a really strong environmental element here too yeah i think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of injury or some other kind of inflammatory disease conditioning causing relapse of cancer. And that's, that's what's scary, as you said, about this vascular mimicry phenomenon is the latency. You know, it's, I'm starting to think of cancer, like not, not of all the, the cancers, you know, that you get and treat, but all the cancers you don't get. You know, you die with all these latent cancers that are just hiding out. And uh, maybe, maybe the means to uh, avoiding cancer and living a long life is just not reactivating all those latent little mimics in your vasculature. Yeah, it's tricky because there's such a such a strong environmental component, whether it's, you know, the things that you eat. And we know that, of course, uh, that's a huge, huge area of study here uh, these days when it comes to um, the microbiome and the effect that actually it, it has on reactivating or activating cancer potentially. So definitely a lot of work that needs to be done here. Next paper we're going to talk about is moving on to the eye. So we're talking about uh, modeling glaucoma in iPS-derived cells. This, uh, it's, you know, glaucoma is a condition that damages the eye's optic nerve, right? And it's something that's pretty prevalent. Um, it's something that's becoming more prevalent among the, the aged portion of the population, right? The aging population. And it's usually the pressure, the result of high pressure inside of the eye. And over time, the pressure can actually erode these retinal ganglion cells, which might lead to vision loss or potentially blindness, blindness, right? If I had to pick one sense that I definitely would not want to lose, it's my sight, right? So um, definitely very important work here. And there's a bunch of animal models, which of course have been developed to understand glaucoma, but folks here at Indiana University are reporting using human pluripotent stem cell models where they can actually analyze the deficits um, in cells that are damaged by glaucoma. So it's an iPS-derived glaucoma model, iPS-derived retinal ganglion cells. Uh, pretty straightforward disease model here. It's in stem cell reports. First, they generated some CRISPR-modified um, iPS lines for the OPTN gene, which is a gene that's critical for um, eye development and also for the onset of glaucoma. They did an E50K mutation here. Uh, they also had some isogenic controls. They saw that this mutation does not affect the early stages of retinal differentiation, but it's later on, it's at the later stages of the maturation in these iPS-derived uh, retinal ganglion cells where they actually have neurite defects. And they did some pretty cool neurite outgrowth, outgrowth uh, tracing here. Um, really, really neat uh, figure in figure three that you can check it out. Uh, the next thing they did was characterize these mutated cells in this E50K mutation. And they saw that these retinal ganglion cells actually had a downregulation of various 
uh, um, RGC associated transcription factors, you know, general RNA sequencing here. Uh, but the I think the exciting thing here was the functional analysis. Anytime you're trying to do a disease model using iPS-derived cells in vitro, whether it's cardiomyocytes, neurons, whatnot, I think uh, showing a functional difference between the, the control and the cells that you're interested in is, I think, the really powerful thing. And here they're actually showing that these OPTN mutated cells, uh, these uh, mutated uh, retinal ganglion cells, actually have an enhanced excitability. Okay, So that is their, their functional output here. And finally, um, you know, wrapping things up with some more RNA-seq, they're able to show that there's differential gene expression between the, the control and the OBTN cells. So uh, this is a relatively straightforward disease model teaching us something about glaucoma, which is something that a lot of us um, experience as we, as we age. And as I mentioned, anything that you can do to better understand sight and how we lose our sight is is needed because it's a scary thing losing your your vision um, and we need to better understand how that happens what jumped out at me when i read the title of this retinal ganglion cells with the glaucoma optn mutation exhibit neurodegenerative phenotypes when derived from three-dimensional retinal organoids so i i kind of just keyed into the title and, and thought that maybe that meant that when they're from 3d organoids versus if they're derived from monolayer do you have any idea of if that's true is like the organoid 3D differentiation? We always talk about that, how 3D allows you to recapitulate not only like cell types and molecular environments, but also like functional elements that aren't present in monolayer. Is that essential um, in this context? Do you have to have 3D, do you know? Yeah, I don't think they did that direct comparison between two different differentiation protocols. As far as I understand, these days, a lot of folks have shifted towards um, 3D differentiation for um, optic differentiation, like retinal ganglion cells. It's just perhaps a more efficient differentiation process. But certainly, uh, the ideal experiment would be to derive these uh, mutated cells, not only in the 3D context, but in a 2D context, and see if you can see that same disease phenotype, right? Yeah, you should do that experiment, Arun, and let me know how that works. Okay. <laughs> Last time I checked, I'm not an eye guy, but you know, I'll get on that. Hey, man, you can always grow. Um, so, yeah, this, this is going totally into the left field here because uh, it's not really, strictly speaking, a stem cell story, but it's a blood story that I love. Also, it's a bit of a callback. Also, our guest coming up in a few minutes, Benoit Bruno, was at the ISSCR, um, and I saw this uh, speaker, also Michelle Satterley and Scott Lowe. I saw the story. I saw Michelle talk about this story in part. Um, it was in Nature a couple weeks ago, so I'm covering it. Okay, listen up. This is also a story that you kind of, you know, led into, and I'll come back to that. It's about um, senolytic agents, okay? A lot of people are excited about these senolytic agents that select selectively eliminate senescent cells, and this kind of started almost a decade ago uh, with work out of the Mayo Clinic that showed you could use this ink attack which would selectively uh, eliminate uh, P16, INC4A positive cells, which that's a hallmark of senescent cells. And you would get apoptosis of those cells, and it led to longevity in these mice. So you clear the senescent cells, the mice do well, presumably the humans do well. So then, uh, just like a few months ago, uh, I think you did the roundup story from Jonathan Epstein, um, where they use CAR T cells. So the idea there is let's take CAR T cells and we'll target them against senescent cells. In this case, 
they were targeting it against senescent cells in the heart, um, fibrotic cells to target cardiac fibrosis. And they targeted this uh, fibrillary acid protein or something, FAP, and they showed it was good for the heart. Okay. No coincidence. This paper came out. That Jonathan Epstein paper came out like September 18th. Michelle and Scott said, we're scooped. That's when they submitted hmm. this paper to Nature. All these papers, by the way, were Nature. The Senesum is Nature with the Ink Attack, Nature with Epstein. Now, this is another Nature paper out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, like I said, Michelle Satterley and Scott Lowe are the lead. And what they show, it's basic. It's just like what you did. They first looked for proteins that were uniquely uh, present in um, senescent cells. And they, this is key because they use these three different models that they said robust models of senescence, which was this mouse lung adenocarcinoma um, that's triggered by therapy to senesce. And they used a oncogene-induced senescence in mouse hepatocytes and culture-induced senescence in mouse hepatic stellate cells. All right, so that's lung and two liver, right? And by doing this in comparison to normal cells, they found that there was this PLAUR, okay? So urokinase type plasminogen activator receptor that was unique in senescent cells. They also showed that it was unique to human senescent cells. They generated some CAR-Ts to that. And lo and behold, it worked. These uh, CAR-T cells, they could attack the flower ex uh, expressing cells in vitro, in vivo. And, and here's was the functional output here that was so exciting. In a nature paper was that they extended the survival of mice with lung adenocarcinoma, okay, lung, and they restored uh, tissue homeostasis in, in mice that had liver fibrosis that was either induced chemically or by diet. Now, I'm not trying to take away because, like, that's huge. Lung and liver, those are a big deal. So if they worked for just that, it'd be enough. But I think, you know, it's no coincidence that they targeted Plower, this urokinase-type plasminogen activating receptor, based on this, these three models that were lung, liver, liver, and then they tested it in, in the lung and the liver and showed that it worked. So while this is a powerful idea for a very directed therapy, I think you still have to wonder about whether or not there's off-target effects, number one, or whether or not this approach specifically with this urokinase type plasminogen actor receptor is going to be suited to kind of senescent cells throughout the body or if it's really just going to work in the liver and the lung in these specific contexts. But still very exciting work. It, the crowd went wild. At ISSCR, when they presented this, it was part of like a spate of these new CAR-T based like cell engineering, super crazy therapies that are going to be just like the standard um, in the future, I'm guessing. Yeah, this is immunotherapy taken to the next level. And you talked about the the other paper that we discussed on the podcast not too long ago um, using um, CAR-T to tar target fibrosis in the heart. And this is kind of an extension of that, right? Um, we're looking at senescence, cell senescence specifically here. I mean, the thing that really excites me about this is because there, there, are, there are so many other disease phenotypes and just um, conditions that are associated with cell senescence, you know, not only in these examples, but also Alzheimer's for potentially progeria and aging have um, various associations with senescent cells. And if you can co-opt these CAR-T um, approaches to actually target these other senescent populations, then I think that's widely applicable across the board. Yes, you know, that's the idea is eternal youth. Uh, but, you know, one thing to consider is that there is no precedent for that in nature. We're kind of outside 
of natural physiology here. And it's, it's important to note that senescence does exist for a reason. There are some compartments where senescence has an important role molecularly, functionally. Um, so we have to watch out about clearing those. But as you said, I mean, this is the, the, the I think the implications for this are broad and it's just a matter of finding uh, an alternate um, cell surface localized factor that's unique to whatever niche you care about. You can target anything. This CAR T, you know, we started talking about it, it was just bloodborne cancers and now it's everything. So it's, it's really, really exciting. And I'm not going to stop talking about it, Arun. So brace yourself. Um, but we'll take a br brief respite into the heart because that's your thing. I like the heart too. Coming up in a few minutes with uh, Dr. Bruno. But first, I have a brief message from Stem Cell. Do you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes? Our guest today does, Arun does, I do. You should use stem cells, stem diff cardiomyocyte median supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells. And the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiff-cardio. All right, guys. Today on the podcast, we have a special guest, Benoit Bruno, who is director of the Gladstone Institute of Cardiovascular Disease. The Bruno Lab investigates the transcription factor networks that regulate lineage commitment and differentiation during heart development and model congenital heart disease using mouse models and human-induced pluripotent stem cells. Dr. Bruno, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is ours. Uh, you know, let's start with the kind of broad scope here. You know, when you think about stem cells in the media, I think, uh, you know, the lay public and media like to focus on the regenerative aspect of stem cells for good reason. You know, it's a huge boon for translational uh, regenerative medicine. Um, but that's mostly for the purpose of treating uh, adults and uh, congenital heart defects, by contrast, the most common of all birth defects. Uh, and we've come a long way surgically in treating newborns, even fetuses in some cases, really. Uh, but why don't you start off by giving us an overview of how you leverage pluripotent stem cells. I mean, we talk about a lot about how you can use it for a heart patch or, you know, heart organoids or modeling disease and pharma, ecology and all that stuff. Why don't you talk about how you can leverage pluripotent stem cells toward understanding and treating heart defects? Well, so that's a really tricky one. Uh, and it's something that we struggled with for a long time because congenital heart defects are a three-dimensional structural defect in the formation of an organ. So how do you model that using, using you know, in our case, iPS cells? And, you know, the, 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 the question we've struggled with is, can you even glean anything from iPS cells to understand congenital heart disease? Because congenital heart disease, and we understand the genetics of it, it, it's, it largely uh, arises from mutations in transcriptional regulators, so transcription factors, histone-modifying enzymes. So genes that, you know, proteins that regulate gene regulatory networks broadly. And so you can imagine a number of scenarios where uh, in a fetal heart that has a mutation in a transcription factor that either the activity of, of the, or the impaired activity of that 
mutated transcription factor affects the formation of just a small subset of cells, let's say the atrial septum or, or the atrioventricular node or the ventricular septum, and that, uh, that there's only uh, you know, those particular cells that have a disrupted gene regulatory network. If you tried to model that using iPS cells, 2D in a dish with directed differentiation, we don't even know if those particular cells exist in an, an iPS cell-based differentiation system, or could we even find them if there was, if they, you know, if they were there, but there were only five percent of the population. So, is is it even worth the trouble to try to model congenital heart disease in a dish? The other possibility is that these transcription factor mutations cause a broad dysregulation of gene regulatory networks in all of the cells in which they're expressed. But that that disrupted gene regulatory network only manifests itself as a structural defect in a particularly sensitive part of the heart. So in that case, the iPS cells would be perfect. So we have a, 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 a preprint that's now in BioArchive where we've tried to, to, to model the loss of function of one of our favorite transcription factors, TBX5, those are the, the first mutation associated with human congenital heart disease. We've been working on this for a long time. And, and so we modeled its uh, haploid sufficiency in iPS cell models, and we're delighted to find that both of the potential models that, that I explained are actually right. And we're able to achieve that using a single cell RNA-seq where we find that there's broad dysregulation of gene regulatory networks in cardiac myocytes that are derived from the mutated iPS cells. But in many cases, we only find gene disruption in subsets of the cells uh, in the dish. So it's imperfect, um, but, it, but it has been able to, to, to get us to an understanding of human congenital heart disease, which we were never able to, to get to uh, un, un, until, until now. Now what we want to do, of course, is then you know, say, okay, what we've learned in iPS cell models related to congenital heart disease, can we go back to a 3D organ? Can, can we go back to the mouse and see whether those things uh, play out in our, in, our, in our mouse models? And we're in the process of doing that. So Benoit, we're of course fans of iPS cardiomyocytes here on the show. We recently had your colleague Deepak Srivastava on the show, and I guess all three of us are basic cardiovascular biologists who are using iPS cardiomyocytes. One thing we didn't really discuss with Deepak, though, is epigenomics. And this has become a really big focus in your lab, where you guys look at chromatin remodeling complexes and the role of CTCF to regulate 3D chromatin structure, all in the context of studying cardiac development. And the traditional view is that it's really the cardiac transcription factors like TBX5 that you mentioned, the GATA family, that are doing the real heavy lifting during cardiogenesis. But of course, you have to view that in the context of the epigenome and chromatin dynamics too. So talk a little bit about the epigenome in the context of heart development and how misregulation might contribute to congenital heart disease. So what have you guys learned about that? Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, you know, I just like Deepak, you know, I, I grew up with DNA binding transcription factors, and and I still think that those are sort of the more powerful, the most powerful instructors, right? They 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 guide the way. They they land in a particular place, and they tell the chromatin remodeling machinery and his one modifying enzymes, come over here and and do your thing. But with that said, you know the transcription factors are also pretty inert molecules. They just they sit there, and then their job is to then bring in the rest. So what is the rest? And how and how does the rest play in to gene regulation and congenital heart disease? 
you know, the, the, the thing that I find is really interesting about all of these mutations in congenital heart disease is that they're all heterozygous mutations, right? It's the dominant mode of inheritance, meaning that the dosage is really, really important. And so you can understand how the dosage of a, of a transcription factor might affect gene regulation, right? 50% loss of occupancy or some, or it goes only to, to the right place 50% of the time. But what about the histone modifying enzymes? What about the chromatin remodelers? We generally think of those as, as being, uh, you know, they're just, they're just there, they go everywhere, they, they, they touch everything. They're not considered to be very specific. Now, we've found in, in our studies of the BAF, the Swiss-Niflec BAF complex chromatin remodelers, that in fact, the function of these chromatin remodelers is exquisitely site-specific. We don't understand exactly how, how that happens. We think it has to do with the subunit composition of the complex and how that's dynamically regulated from, from cell to cell. And that somehow, and we don't understand it yet, that that dictates the preferential recruitment of those complexes uh, to one locus uh, and the other. Now you mentioned the, the epigenetics and that becomes perhaps even, even more nebulous because the epigenetics are measured quantitatively. We talk about you know, increased or reduced chip-seek signal for a particular histone modification. But how does that actually translate to altered gene expression? I don't think that's, that's really, really understood. And the final point is that you, 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 know, you bring up CTCF and, and 3D chromatin interactions. I think that when we're thinking about the histone landscape and, for example, enhancer promoter interactions, that I think there's emerging evidence that, that that's where the connections are being made, that the, the histone modifications and how they create a, uh, um, a potential for the, the, the proximity or the interaction or however you, the phase transition, if you, if, if you want to use a sort of a, the super enhancer of the day type phrase, um, those preferential interactions, I think, are quantitatively regulated. And I think that's how the epigenetic landscape modulates specific loci in a, in a quantitative way. We're talking super, super deep, basic mechanism, molecular <laughs> bits and pieces here. And I mean, that's what they get at the Gladstone. Um, it's a powerhouse, both basic and translational as well, of course, cardiovascular research. We've had members in regular rotation, as Arun mentioned there. We had Deepak Srivastava. Also, Todd McDevitt's joined us. What draws such, you know, the brightest minds? You know, what draws you all to the Gladstone? Or what's the common denominator you think there? Is it intellectual freedom, as they talk about? you know, that pie in the sky in science, is it the, the ultimate freedom or is it just because you have such a brain trust? You know, talk about that. I think there's three major, major aspects. I think one is definitely the, the, the intellectual freedom and specifically the notion that we're basic scientists. And we talked, you know, I was, you know, Arun and I kind of nerded out on transcription factors for a second in epigenomics. <laughs> But really what, you know, what we're focused as, 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 as overall at the Institute and whatever it, disease it is that, that we're focused on, whether it be heart disease or neurological disease, we're focused on basic science towards understanding and curing disease, right? So it's not like, let's say, a biochemistry department where, you know, we want to understand, you know, molecules and phosphorylation of, you know, of, of, this, of this particular pathway or that. We want to understand that, but we want to understand it 
really with the end game being we want to understand disease and we want to be able to generate potential therapies for those particular diseases. So that's number one. I think we all come together with a notion that we want to understand disease from a basic science point of view and we want to make a difference for the, for people afflicted with those diseases. Um, the other is, is culture, right? I mean, we, we, we choose uh, people who, who join us really, really carefully. And we have a, a, a culture of, of collegiality, of mutual respect. You know, we're, we're, we're in a place where, you know, we celebrate one another's success. We go out of our way to help our, our, our neighbors succeed. And it takes a special place to empower that, to not feel that, that we need to be, you know, you know, going after the, you know, the next big thing. We're, we're here to do the best science we can together. And it takes a really special place uh, to do that. And the other thing, which is really just a practical thing, is that we're, you know, we're a, a medium-sized independent research institute. And that gives us uh, a way of doing things that are, that are nimble and fast. And we can do things the way that we want to do them. And if we need to change tech, um, we can just decide to do that. We can do things the way that we want and not be encumbered by, you know, by a gigantic uh, administration with, with cumbersome rules and so on. So, so it's, so it's, it's, it's a combination of, of being, of being, uh, it's a combination of being, uh, small and nimble and adaptable and, you know, really excited about pushing the envelope at all times. So the Gladstone is certainly a powerhouse for cardiovascular science. And as you just mentioned, you're not afraid of thinking outside the box. So we got to talk a little bit about a pretty wild project that your lab did recently, which got a ton of press, one of my say, favorite science projects of all time. So in a collaborative effort, your lab sequenced the genome of the Komodo dragon, showing that it has positive selection in gene pathways related to energy metabolism and cardiovascular homeostasis. And then you showed that this selective pressure might have influenced the blood genes that actually help Komodo dragons evade the anticoagulant effects of their own saliva. So, wow, I've got so many questions. So first of all, <laughs> how the heck does a project like that happen in the first place? Are you guys thinking about a follow-up? Are people thinking about using these anti these anticoagulants clinically? And can you show me your Komodo dragon collection next time I visit the Gladstone? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have a Komodo dragon collection, unfortunately. Uh, I, I do have a few uh, alligator and turtle embryos uh, in methanol in the freezer. That was for a related project. I mean, how did this project come along? So it came along from an observation, again, related to understanding congenital heart disease, and again related to the dosage of, of, of TBX5. This is sort of a, a thread that follows, that's been following me around for, for what, 25 years now. We made an observation uh, a long time ago, we published this in, in 2009, where we, uh, we deleted TBX5 from a, just a segment of the heart where there's the junction between the left and the right ventricles, which is where the ventricular septum forms, right? And we found that when we deleted TBX5 from there, we lost entirely an interventricular septum. So we went from uh, a four-chambered heart, like mammals and birds, to a three-chambered heart, which is like a frog. And so, so we thought, gosh, maybe there's a pattern of TBX5 in evolution that dictates the emergence of the interventricular septum. So frogs don't have a septum. Uh, croc crocodilians and birds uh, do, and mammals do. So ventricular septation has evolved twice in evolution, and, uh, and other reptiles, 
uh, like turtles, for example, which we initially examined, have a partial septum. It's like it's they're it's trying to make a, a ventricular septum, but it hasn't quite reached the ability to to to, to do that. And so and and so we, when we published that, we showed that there was there was gradients of TBX5 expression. And so we thought, okay, there's going to be enhancer elements that are going to be regulating TBX5 expression. Those enhancer elements might have changed during evolution, and and maybe if we can identify them, we can find what you know what the regulatory elements that have evolved to form the four-chambered heart. Wouldn't that be cool? And so to do that, uh, we need wanted to do comparative genomics. To do comparative genomics, you need genomes. And so at the time, so this is in 2009. At the time, we're thinking about this. Uh, there was a gator genome that was uh, being done, but it was poorly assembled. The green animal genome, so a, a lizard. Uh, turtle genomes was coming on, were coming online. We participated in one of those a long time ago. Um, and, and the one branch of, of lizards that was, that was missing was the varanid lizards. So the varanid lizards occupy a very special place in, in reptile, in, in, in reptilia in that they have an almost completely uh, septated heart. So all, an almost, but not quite. Um, and they have a, a metabolism, as you pointed out, that's really, really interesting. So branded lizards, unlike other, other reptiles, when they're in a hurry, when they need to, to run after a prey or, or go long distances, they can ramp up their cardiovascular metabolism to near mammalian levels. So that makes them really, really interesting. They're like quasi mammals or quasi, it's, it's, they're really weird. Um, and so, and so we got in touch with, with, with some folks and, and we could have, you know, we could have picked an easily accessible monitor lizard that somebody's studying in a physiology lab down at UC Irvine, but we thought, you know, go big or go home. Why not go after <laughs> the, the biggest one out there, the Komodo dragon, it captures everyone's, uh, imagination. We also thought, we also hoped that we could learn something about, about gigantism because mm. it, it, you know, the, the veranda lizards also have this amazing range there. They can be as big as the 200 kilo Komodo dragon, or they can be as small as a 200 gram, you know, monitor lizard. that has got a huge range of size. And so we thought maybe we could understand something and we, nothing came out of the genome related to that. And so, um, we, you know, the person I, I started working on this, Alicia Holloway, who was our director of the genomics core at the time, she had a friend at Zoo at Zoo Atlanta, uh, Joe mm -hmm. Mendelson, who uh, who had Komodo dragons, and so she contacted him and said, "Hey, can I get a vial of blood?" And he was like, "Sure, write up this protocol, and and we'll, we'll we'll send you blood." And so, you know, within a couple of months, we had dragon blood in in the lab, and we're like, "All right, let's <laughs> start let's start sequencing this." We didn't have a budget for this. We didn't have a grant for it. We didn't have people on it. So it took. It took eight years for this project to, to go along because there was gaps. There was gaps of two years where there was just nobody, or a year or two where there was just nobody working on it because we're like, okay, let's get it sequenced, and then like we got it sequenced, and like where did we get money to get it sequenced? And so, you know, eventually we had you know Poi Kwok at UCSF who got really excited about it, and he has a genome center, and he was like, all right, we can help you with with some with some sequencing runs, and we can help you with with uh, with the mapping. And then it was like, well, who's going to do the assembly? And we're like, I don't know who, you know. And then we happened to know somebody who had done the annual assembly, who who was in who was in a lab next door, and so he he helped out. So now we had an assembly, and we're like, well, what do we do now that we have an assembly? We have to analyze this this genome, and and so we had nobody to analyze it. Finally, you know, sort of pinch hitting at the you know was you know at, in the ninth inning with all bases loaded, uh, we had Abigail Lind come in 
And, and she's like, well, I, I know how to do this and I'm interested in doing it. So she did all of the, all the downstream uh, analysis. She discovered all of these, all these, these adaptation that were, that were hidden in, in the genome. And that's the wonderful thing that I, that I learned about, about doing this, two wonderful things I learned about doing this project. One is the generosity of colleagues that, that we have around us. You know, that, 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 that famous phrase from, from the movie, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers and I won't do the Blanche Dubois voice. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, it really was, it really was a, 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 a uh, you know, roots effort. It really was, you know, community effort to, to, to get this done. And, and so that was really fantastic. And the other thing was that if you ask a genome to reveal its, its secrets, you're going to get not necessarily what you asked for. You're going to get what it allows you to see and, and, and nothing more. And, and it was super exciting to, to see all these things related to, to, to cardiovascular function and, you know, and, and the huge signal on mitochondrial function and metabolism and, and, and generation. And it was right there. The answer was right there. It was like, bam, muscle, muscle energy. That's exactly what explains everything. It was really, really cool. The thing about the, 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 the coagulation, that was really unexpected because we kind of thought about that afterwards. We're like, yeah, these guys, you know, these guys take down their prey by, by basically creating septic shock and, and, and absence of, of coagulation and parent coagulation. Why is it when they're fighting with one another, you know, over territory or, or over mates, why don't they fall prey to that sort of thing? So it's intriguing. It's a testable hypothesis. We're not sure that, that, that it's true, um, but, it, but, it, but it certainly was, was an interesting signal that came out. And after all that, you can say, like, not a lot of other stem cell biologists, I would bet that you have dragon blood in your minus 80. So go for yours, my man. It's amazing. Oh, my God. We, 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 had, we had dragon heart. Actually, our RNA-seq that we used was, was from heart. So we had, dra uh, we had an actual dragon, piece of dragon heart sitting in the, sitting in the freezer for a while. That was, that was really neat. You got to watch um, out you know, for what, what, what comes next is, you know, we're hoping to, to do you know, to do, uh, uh, to go after those, to those enhancers. But we realize that now we realize that if we really want to go after those enhancers, we really need the, the epigenetic information. We really need, you know, the chip seek data for the histone modifications mm -hmm. on the tissues that we're, that we're interested in. So that would mean getting monitor lizard embryos and doing all that, that sort of thing. And at the moment, we're just not prepared to do that. <laughs> not ready for all that. Um, it's not a surprise to me, though, that you dabble in Komodos. Arun is surprised. I'm not surprised because I have heard you quoted as saying that your passion for science began with your hands-on lab course that used axolotl. Um, axolotl, which famously regenerate their hearts after injury, and maybe that's what uh, got you hooked. Um, is that just a coincidence that the heart regeneration in that intro to science, or is that really the root of it all for you in terms of your passion? And what, what's going on with that in terms, I mean, at the Gladstone in your lab personally, you know, tapping the regenerative potential, you just were talking about how this septal, um, you know, the septal, septum was evolved independently twice, and it's just this kind of modular, maybe gene insertion or enhancer function. Uh, do you think that in a similar or maybe not similar, but do you think there's a way uh, to restore the regenerative potential of the heart in humans, or is that far-fetched? Well, I'll answer the, the, is there a regenerative potential in the human heart? I'd say optimistically, yes. Uh, but practically, how do you do that? You know, it's, you know with, with gene therapy, with drugs, with all these things, it's all about 
delivery and efficient and efficacy. And, and you know, delivering a, a gene therapy that would regrow a heart in a fetal human is at the moment a bit far-fetched. But it's not, you know, it's not science fiction. It's something that I think that I think might be a possible avenue. Now, if we go back to the axolotl in, in John Armstrong's third grade biology, uh, third grade, third year <laughs> biology class, I wasn't quite that young. Um, I, I was just, I just became absolutely fascinated with, with uh, developmental biology at that moment. It's just something that, that, that really grabbed me and, and has always been something uh, that, that, that I've been fascinated with. I mean, the, 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 the exper so we had a lab, we had an experimental lab where we used the axolotl embryos to recreate some of the famous uh, you know, early embryology experiments, like putting you know, endoderm next to ectoderm and, and seeing an inductive uh, power of the endoderm on, on the ectoderm, or, doing, or taking uh, organ primordia and transplanting them and seeing you know, the actual organ grow in an ectopic location uh, on the embryo. So for example, we could take the, the gill primordia of the axolotl and transplant them to the flank and then have perfectly normal looking gills. So the notion that there's, that there's both plasticity and stability in a developmental program is something that, that really grabbed me right away. And, and so, so to understand the development of, of, of the heart, which is what I, I got interested in, uh, around that time, uh, the, the, the notion that both the, the heart comes together properly 99% of the time means that there's, there has to be some exquisite stability and precision to those gene regu regulatory networks. And so, and so that's, what, you know, that's what we're at the moment trying to understand. So how does the ventricular septum form perfectly and in sync with the, with the valves and the epsilon tract 99% of the time, what are the gene regulatory networks? And we've got some really, really cool projects where we're using uh, lineage tracing uh, in the mouse to identify very specific subset of progenitors that we now know give rise to only to that boundary between the left and the right sides of the interventricular septum. So we know where to look, and we're now about to understand in the next sort of few months or so, you know, the molecules that are, that are involved there. Now, using that knowledge, could we? instruct uh, a poorly formed interventricular septum uh, to form properly, maybe. It's a big maybe. I think, you know, what, what Arun was bringing up with the sort of the, the, the epigenetics, if we think of, of the, the mutations or the processes as being a quantitative impairment of some epigenomic pathways, I think if we can, if we can think of ways where we can tweak those, and those are highly druggable targets, it's and it's not even just druggable, but they're they're very much regulated uh, by metabolic pathways. So you can tweak metabolism and affect epigenetics in a way that then broadly affects gene gene regulatory pathways. And we're beginning to understand we as a field, not we not in my lab, as a field are beginning to understand what are sort of the metabolic pathways, the, the specific ones that are involved in modulating positively or negatively various enzymes are involved in, 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 modifying, in modifying histones. So if we sort of step back and think, you know, back to, let's say, neural tube defects and, and folate deficiency and folic acid supplementation in moms, that's now reduced the incidence of neural tube defects by 75%. If we could find a sort of similar thing, a, 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 a vitamin-based sort of modulator of, of epigenetics that would 
mitigate or, or dampen the effect of the impaired gene regulatory networks that then cause congenital heart defects, I think there that would be something that, that might, be, might be tractable mm. in terms of modulating sort of, sort of what's happening. In terms of using cell therapy or gene therapy to, to induce growth, that would have to be something that would be very, very, very specifically controlled. Because of course, you know, too, you know, too much of these transcription, transcriptional regulators is also not good for the, the, proper, the proper development. I think the, the regenerative potential of either gene therapy or cell-based therapies is, is better suited to, to adult uh, disease, to either uh, post-myocardial infarction, uh, restoration of, of dead tissue, or improved uh, heart function in patients uh, with, with heart failure. And we're seeing advances. Deepak probably talked about, about that uh, in his podcast, and, 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 and his lab has certainly made advances towards that. Yeah, certainly there's a lot that we need to still learn and figure out when it comes to adult human cardiac regeneration. And it's cool to see, you know, where your inspiration comes from, because I think as stem cell biologists, we're all kind of developmental biologists at our core, right? And so we've actually had a bit of a shared road, Benoit, a bit of a shared scientific road in that we're both, you know, stem cell biologists using iPS cardiomyocytes to model disease. But we've also both done postdocs in the shared lab of two of the greatest cardiac biologists of all time, John and Cricket Seidman over in the Harvard Medical School. So John and Cricket, who are a husband and wife team, have had their lab in Boston for decades and have trained a ton of scientists like ourselves. And they've been instrumental in figuring out the genetics of cardiomyopathy and cardiovascular disease. And like you mentioned, when you were a postdoc, you helped uncover how TBX5, which is a critical cardiac transcription factor, contributes to Holt-Oram syndrome. And I'm pretty sure I saw some of your reagents from the 90s still in the Seidman lab <laughs> freezers. They don't really throw anything away. So that, that was kind of cool to see. It's like a, it's like a walk through a museum in there sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So mentorship is, of course, everything in science, right? And you're actually still collaborating with them. So how have they influenced you as a scientist and helped shape you into the scientist you are today? Oh my gosh, yeah. I've I've been working with the Sidons for now, I guess, my gosh, since since 1996. So however many years that is, that's many years. Um, and and they've they've really shaped how I am as a scientist in in ways that go beyond simply being a postdoc mentor. Uh, they've really been they've been cheerleaders for me. Um, they've become friends. Uh, close colleagues. It's been really, it's been really incredible that over, over so many years, uh, they've moved from, you know, I've gone from being, you know, a, a naive uh, PhD student starting a postdoc, not knowing how to clone properly, to, you know, now where I am in, in my career. And every step along the way, they've been supporters of me personally and my career. In some shape or form, and 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 now we, you know, we've for the last uh, eleven years, we've we've been close collaborators on on a project uh, uh, called the Bench to Bassinet project. It's funded by by the NHLBI, and you know, at first I, I wasn't wasn't sure how I'd feel about you know being on on conference calls every every two weeks with 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 John and Cricket and and sharing my most intimate data secrets. And it turns out, it turns out that's been the most fun thing 
and the most sort of productive interactions that I've ever had. And and over over, you know, over those those decades that 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 we've been working together, um, I've only gained increased respect for for the two of them, both as scientists, as mentors, and and just as as people. They're really extraordinary individuals. And and you know, you and I, Arun, are are really privileged to to have been uh, under their wing for for at least a few years. Mm-hmm. That's very sweet, you guys. And I I wish I were. I'm going to go do a postdoc in that lab. Hey, you guys taking <laughs> postdocs? Um, while we're on the personal note here, you've shared in the past, I don't want to impinge, but you've shared in the past that your own daughter, Nico, was born with a septal defect, making your work an incredibly personal commitment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Knowing what you know, how do you take that diagnosis? And I've always m- admired your strong commitment to basic, basic, basic. We talked about it earlier. You guys go deep on um, cardiogenesis. Do you think that your daughter's experience has driven you to place a greater emphasis on the clinical translational application? I know you started in the outset saying that the whole end game is is translation. You know, it's basic mechanism, but toward yeah. an applied clinical goal is there is did that shift are you more motivated i know in your case it's not an issue anymore but knowing or having that experience uh you know you can really empathize with a lot of parents out there that are going through a similar experience does that motivate you in part it really it it really really does i mean it you know up until then you know i'd written the you know the the chapter or the reviews on the etiology of, of congenital heart disease and you know, after after the 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 actual the echocardiography, we actually saw you know the the Doppler jet going going across the the, the interventricular septum of my daughter, who was squirming and not letting the echocardiographer. <laughs> or she was two weeks old. It was at her two week two week checkup that uh, the the pediatrician was just listening in, and I was looking at him, and I was like, you know, he's with a stethoscope, and I'm like, he's listening way too long. Mm. What's going on? And 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 Anyway, so we so uh, and you know my wife asked me yesterday. She said, "Well, what did we do wrong, and what what causes this? What's you know, what's what? Why is this happening?" And I didn't have an answer for her. I said, "I don't know." And I said, "You know," and I thought, "Gosh, despite you know, I've been studying this for you know at the time I'd have been studying this for fifteen years. I'm like, I don't know. I mm-hmm. don't have an answer for you." And so, in a sense, it it really did motivate me. A great deal. I mean, scientifically, I was already very motivated, but it was a very, it was, it really kickstarted my motivation, and also made me realize, you know, that that when we talk about one percent, right, one percent of live births have a congenital heart defect. You sort of think, well, that's not a lot. That's you know, that's not a lot. But when you're in that one percent, and and you know, and and I like to joke, you know, we were we we're in the we're in the wrong we're the wrong one percenters. You know, <laughs> love to be in that other one percent group, but the you know that one percent that counts for a lot. And when you think of, of of chances of you know let's say of developing a particular type of cancer where it's like you know it's two percent if you have such a mutation that two percent counts for a lot and so and definitely you know and, and as as you as you alluded to it you know the the, the VSD closed by itself and so so we, we got out of the woods um, it, you know after after a, a year and a half of of a bit of anguish. Uh, but there's a lot of parents who don't, a lot of parents who have much more serious, uh, heart defects. And, and in fact, we're working with, with foundation that's been established by, by a family in Silicon Valley 
whose child has a very, very serious uh, heart defect, who's had three open heart surgeries, and they desperately want to understand how this happens and, and, and what you can do about it. Because the other thing about, about congenital heart disease that a lot of people don't think about, but despite the success in, in, in surgical correction, there's a lot of things that come along with the structural defect, right? They, these kids have degrees of, of arrhythmias. They have degree, you know, they, they develop uh, heart failure. They develop uh, diastolic dysfunction. They have other sequelae that we don't understand, uh, that we don't necessarily know if it's the mutations that directly caused that. Those have in the past been ascribed to, oh, well, this kid had you know, complex surgeries, has had ischemia, has had a number of things. So it's probably secondary to that. But we think there's a lot more. And we know that genes like TBX5 that we talked about are directly involved in aspects of heart function that go beyond the formation of the heart. It's a, it's a major, uh, it's a, it's a major uh, genetic risk factor for atrial fibrillation, for example, and is directly involved in regulating the contractile properties of the heart. And so even though you might surgically correct the heart, there are other things that we need to understand and that we need to treat better uh, in these kids with congenital heart defects. So all that to say that, you know, that this personal link has, has definitely touched me uh, in, in, in many ways. I mean, the, the, the whole initiation of me wanting to, to study the heart was my father's myocardial infarction when I was 16 years old and, and he, was, he was 43. He survived it, had triple bypass surgery, and he's now in his late 70s and has an ejection fraction that is well below, so his heart function is, is severely impaired. He has a pacemaker defibrillator that, that once in a while keeps him alive, um, and there's nothing we can do about him. You know, and his and his failing heart, and so and so that's another thing that that motivates me tremendously, uh, and and so so I've got the you know these two people in my life that I love dearly who've had two very different spectrums uh, of of heart disease, and I think of them with every experiment that that we do in the lab, and despite you know the the focus on 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 basic science. Um, I hope at some point I can do, you know, something useful for, for my dad and something meaningful for my daughter mm. and for everybody else out there who has these, you know, issues that seem unlinked, but actually are, are, are just two ends of, of the same spectrum. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Benoit. And heart disease is something that unfortunately affects so many of us and so many of our families. You know, it's also my own motivation as to why I got into this field. So um, everything that we that we do definitely helps. And we're approaching the end of our interview here. And so before we let you go, we're going to ask you a few non-science related questions. Uh, one sort of science related question. Um, it's no secret that you're really active on Twitter. Okay. And a lot of other academic folks, not including Daylon, have become pretty active on Twitter over the last few years and using it for science communication and a little self-promotion here and there along the way too, right? But in addition to the usual science communication, I've noticed that you're actually very vocal on Twitter about important non-science topics like social justice, diversity, and even politics. So talk about your approach to using Twitter, how you got into it, and how you use it not only for science, but also to talk about these other important issues too. Yeah, I got into it. I'm, I'm not sure how I got into it. I, I guess it's just something that you know I got interested in and saying, hey, you know, what are people 
talking about on this platform, you sort of hear about it. And this is quite a while ago. This is about 10 years ago or nine years ago. I, I started on it. And and I got I got really excited in the scientific community, especially the 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 folks in genetics and genomics were were early adopters of Twitter and were very uh, a very interactive group. And I learned a ton of both technical things. And and there was a whole thing about people live tweeting conferences. I was like, wow, I can follow somebody's Twitter thread about this genomics conference that I'm not attending and get a ton of information in real time. The other, I found myself at, at one point, I was having a, a, a scientific discussion with uh, Mike Eisen, who was over in Berkeley, which is a couple of, so he's was a couple of miles away from me somebody in the UK and somebody in Japan. And in real time, we're having this, this nitty gritty discussion about some science topic. I thought, wow, this is a place where I can interact in almost in, either in real time or almost in real time with people around the world who I've never met and, and who, have, who have really interesting views on, on things and initially on science. The other thing I really like about, about, about Twitter and, and partly why I, I, I engage with it the way that I do is that it is a great equalizer. I just had a, uh, I just had a, a conversation about somebody's paper just, just yesterday with, you know, the senior author on the paper with, you know, another, you know, scientist over, over in the UK and with a graduate student in Ottawa, Canada, in the same department where I did my, 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 my undergrad. And, you know, and all of us are, are, are discussing this, like, you know, like, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter that I'm a director of a research institute. It doesn't matter that that the senior PI is a you know the PI on the paper is a junior PI. It doesn't matter that there's a it's a graduate student in in you know in a small university. We're just talking science. So so it's it's, it's an amazing equalizer I find that you know there's no there's no hierarchy or at least there shouldn't be. And and those and those who display some 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 kind of you know notion that there's a hierarchy really don't do very well on on Twitter because. Everybody is on is, is on par, or at least should be. And about other issues, you know, I I I use I view Twitter as something that should reflect my voice and my personality. Uh, sometimes that's a bad thing, and sometimes that doesn't come out quite right. Just like you know, it does in in my normal conversations. And you know, when I have strong opinions about about social justice. Uh, you know, I share them with my friends and I don't know who's, you know, necessarily who's, who's listening on Twitter. That's the one thing that, I, that amazes me is, is, you know, that people actually pay attention uh, to people like me, but it's, I don't know, I like having conversations about things that are important to me, just like we're doing with this, with, with, you know, with this, with this podcast. I really like, you know, having these conversations uh, about things that, that, I think are interesting or things that are, that are important. I try to stay away from politics because I, I, I realize that that's an overly touchy subject. Sometimes it's really hard not to, especially these days. Hmm. Um, social justice though, that's something that's, that, that, that's always been really important, especially now. Yes. Especially now. Uh, and yes, you're facile with the new media, maybe more than some people who are on this podcast right now. I'm, I'm looking to get on Twitter any day now. I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm wrestling with it. Um, uh -huh. But let's move away from the new media to the old media. If we're talking science peripheral question, let's talk about, you know, the old ink and paper. What's a non-science or science related book that you're reading, you've read 
that is awesome and that you would recommend to our listening audience? Yeah, one of my favorite books in the last, I think, 10 years is, is uh, Viet Nguyen's The Sympathizer. Hmm. It's, uh, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've, you, you've read this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Viet, Viet is a, is a, is a uh, professor. Uh, I can't remember where, 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 where he teaches. He's, he's, uh, he's an American. He's a, he's a uh, Vietnamese immigrant. And, and he, he wrote this book about, about uh, Vietnamese immigrants right after the, 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 the Vietnam War. And, and it's written in a, in a voice and in a style that's, that's really absolutely captivating. The story is super interesting. It's a story about, uh, you know, about a, a, a Vietnamese informant uh, who then escapes Vietnam and establishes himself, you know, in, in the United States and his family and how they want to, you know, and, and organize a return to, to, to take back over Vietnam. And, and it, it, and it morphs in the end where, where the, the individual it is, goes back to Vietnam and is, is captured and, 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 and jailed for having been an, an, an informant. And, and, and all of a sudden the, the, the book, and he's forced to tell his story to, 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 and, and the book changes from, from, uh, uh, from an anonymous narrator to now this person telling telling his story, and it's it's just a, a it's just a literary masterpiece and a fantastic view into you know the the immigrant experience uh, in in the United States in in the in the early 1970s. It's really really wonderful book. It really resonates right now. That's Viet Nguyen, who is a professor at USC. Just look that up for you. Yep. Um, and finally, to close, will you just tell us who, you know, you're a hero to a lot of young scientists out there. Um, who are your own personal scientific heroes? Yeah, so I've got two. I mean, I, we, we mentioned the Seidmans, and they've been fantastic uh, mentors to me. Um, I'd say probably my biggest scientific hero is uh, Janet Rossent, a, a very famous uh, developmental biologist um, who spent most of her, her career uh, in, in Toronto. Um, she is a force of nature and she was a very, she has always been a very strong woman in science. She, I think she is, she should be the exemplar, uh, to women in science. She was a faculty at a small university, uh, in Ontario at Brock university at a time where, uh, women scientists, uh, were not, uh, I guess, you know, celebrated or not uh, doing as well as their as their male colleagues, and she built a, a career on early mouse embryology uh, at a time where very few people were were doing that, and she had the wherewithal to to sort of propel that uh, towards again using basic science and embryology to understand principles of disease, to understand molecular uh, mechanisms. And really was was one of the one of the leading lights uh, in Canada and the world in the use of em- mouse embryonic stem cells in first in you know making mouse knockouts, but then in using them to understand fundamental properties of of pluripotency and and uh, lineage uh, allocation. But beyond the science, she's been an extraordinary mentor to an, 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 a number of people, not just in her field, but Across almost all all disciplines, she was the the uh, director of research at the hospital for sick children um, when I was there, and 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 
continued growing that institution into something that was absolutely phenomenal. She's been a leader internationally, um, for example, in the, uh, in the ISS, in ISSCR and many other uh, organizations. She's been an enormous influence uh, f for women in science and for just about anyone, young person who, who wants to succeed in science. She mentored me and, and helped me succeed. And she's you know somebody who's touched uh, so many people while at the same time doing the most incredible biology that has influenced hundreds of people in, in many, many disciplines. Yeah, and I will throw in there that she's top three interviews we've ever done on this show. I mean, might be number one. My favorite, my favorite chat that I ever had. Like you said, a force of nature. Um, not unlike yourself, although maybe you got a little bit more growing to do. Dr. Bruno, <laughs> it's been really nice talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And uh, we'll be sure to have you on again if you're willing. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com where you can give us some feedback or suggest guests. Like I said in the intro, we have three great interviews with some of the top stars of the ISSCR coming up in the next few episodes. So listen close to that. Thanks, you guys, for joining us for this one. It was a great episode. Thank you, Benoit, for your wisdom. We'll see you guys next time.